Perhaps you've heard the old preacher story about a, a job applicant, a guy going in for a job, and it was in the big city, and it was a high-rise, and he was going up to the 15th floor, was greeted by the receptionist and told to have a seat, and uh, he would be called in shortly. Well, it, the, the time kept going on and on and on, and, and he was getting a little nervous about uh, what was going on. He was looking at his watch. He had other things to do that day. All of a sudden, the custodian came by and, and said, Hey, I, I'm looking for some help. Uh, down, this, down this hallway, I've, I've got a spill. Could you come and help me? And the guy says, Are you kidding me? I, I make six figures. I'm here for a very important job. Um, I, that's not my job. You, you go do that. And so the custodian said, Okay. And he went down the hall and cleaned up the mess. About five, ten minutes later, the receptionist came back up to the man waiting uh, to, to see the boss and said, okay, your interview is done. Uh, thank you very much. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll be calling you. He said, no, my interview is, I, I, didn't, I didn't have the interview. She goes, oh, yes, you did. The custodian was our boss. And he does this so that he understands that anybody who comes to work for our company, they better be willing to be servants before they are in charge of anything. Now, you could just imagine how that guy felt and, and what, what kind of horrible attitude that is to, to go through life kind of feeling like you're privileged and you don't have to, to serve at all. Now, if you recall our mission statement here, uh, it's, it's always in the back of our, or the front of our bulletin, uh, behind that, uh, that title sheet there. But uh, Palo Beach Christian Church exists to know, serve, uh, know, love, and serve God by helping people to connect with Jesus Christ and God's family, to, to encourage them to grow, to become more like Christ, to equip them to serve in ministry, and facilitating the body of Christ to go, uh, both locally and globally, in the expansion of God's kingdom. Now, as you look at that, I, I think that we do about 75% of that really well. Uh, our connection time, I mean, all I got to do is tell you to, to turn around and greet somebody, and it's like 15 more minutes, and I, I can't even get you back because you like connecting with people and, and looking for new people, and, and you're inviting people in, and we're getting ready to have our newcomers gathering on, on the 16th of February, where if you find yourself new or new-ish, you can come and uh, enjoy a kind of a sit-down meal with us and, and ask questions and get to know us, and we can get to know you. I also think that we, uh, we, we have programs to help you grow, not just here on a Sunday morning, but there's Sunday school um, in between services. There are life groups out there. There are Bible studies that you can be a part of. And obviously, we have Go Moments. We have Mission Sunday. Uh, DC and, and a crew have been uh, gone to Uganda once again. Uh, and so we've got 22 missions that we support, both here in our community and, and uh, regionally and, and globally. And so I think we're doing all those well. But I, I, wonder, I wonder about equipping people to serve. How are we doing at that? Now, you've probably heard of the 2080 rule. 2080 rule means that 20% of the people in an organization do 80% of the work. And, and that's typical in, in most churches, where you get those people who are really involved, who, who see the big picture, who love to serve, and there's about 20% of those people who do the, the majority of the, the work. And in fact, when you say, hey, we have a, a brand new ministry starting up, it's those people who are already involved who want to get more involved and say, hey, we've got an opportunity. And, and it's the same people raising their hands saying, I want to do that. Now, that's not bad, but that does then mean that somebody else isn't going to be able to step into that role as well. Uh, 
Now, let, let me tell you a little bit about my story. Because when I was growing up, I, I chose to go to a Bible college. Uh, Pastor Andy, he and I were talking, he went to a, a seminary. And, and that, that, those are places where you get trained to do ministry. And for four years, I was trained how to do ministry. The, the, the problem is, is that when I was in my second ministry down in Napa, California, our senior pastor, Ron Carter, called me in and said, Trey, that's not your job. Uh, to, to do ministry. I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. So he and I had our own little personal Bible study as we went to Ephesians 4, and he had me read verses 11 through 16 out loud. And it went something like this. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ, and from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, at first glance, I said, well, this is about spiritual gifts, right? And and Ron said, yeah, kind of, but it's a little bit more than that as well. He said, Trey, do you love the church? I said, oh yeah, I love the church. I love God's people. He goes, oh, would you like them to be built up and have knowledge and attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? I said, yes, that's exactly what I would want to do. He says, well, then look at what your job is. I said, well, there, there it is. He gave some to be apostles. That's not me. Some to be prophets. No. Some to be evangelists. Well, kind of. Some to be pastors. Well, that's me. I have a pastor's heart. That's, that's me. He says, Why? Why does God want you to be a pastor? To what extent? Read the very next part, Trey. And I did. It says in verse 12, to prepare God's people for works of service. (laughs) There was the rub. What I had learned to do in Bible college, well, that actually missed the mark because it prepared me to do, but it did not ever teach me how to equip you to do. I'll just, I'll just do it. I'll just, I'll, I'll take care of it. I, I got it. Don't, don't worry about it. And I fall into the same trap that the church has been in for ages. Back in the dark ages, back in the medieval times, the distinction, the gap between the laity, the people of the church, and the clergy, those who were leading the church, all of a sudden that gap became wider and wider and wider. And it no longer looked like this. It was now more like this where the clergy were way more important on this hierarchy than the people. And the people could not get to God unless they had their leaders. Well, then one of the the rallying cries of the Reformation when Martin Luther came onto the scene was that, no, that's not biblical. What's biblical is that every member of God's church, every member of God's church is actually a minister. Uh, Peter talks about this in one of his letters. He says that the church is a chosen people. It's a holy nation. It's a royal priesthood. And so when you start to think, well, how many ministers do we have here at the church? I would say we have over 400. 
And you say, well, <laughs> that's a big budget. No, no, because we, we don't pay over 400 people, but we have over 400 ministers, the way that the Bible has explained it. Now, we have a few paid equippers where we as pastors are supposed to come alongside of the congregation and help them find their, their way to serve, their giftedness, their shape to serve. But it's, it's interesting when you go back here and, and you look at this uh, Ephesians 4 passage that we see uh, that there are a few truths. Number one, the way that God designed it is pastors are supposed to prepare people. Pastors prepare. It was he who gave some to be pastors to prepare God's people. Now, I love that word prepare because it's the exact same word as we find in the Gospels when Peter and John and James, they were preparing their nets to go out fishing. That, that meant that they had to clean the gunk off of the nets from the last time they went fishing, that they had to repair the nets and make sure that they were sound to go out uh, to be used in service. And, and the nets were being prepared for use, not for storage. I love that. So when we are preparing God's uh, people for works uh, of service, it's to, to allow you to be utilized, not to be put into storage. So pastors prepare, servants serve. Uh, they are prepared. These people are prepared for works of service. Every member of our congregation needs to be a minister. God tells us, through Peter again in 1 Peter 4, that we should use whatever gift we have, not for ourselves, but to serve others. And so the goal is, as pastors prepare and servants serve, the goal is growth, both spiritual growth and numerical growth as more and more people come into the kingdom. See, when you break down all of these different verses, verses 12 through 16 of Ephesians 4, you'll see that the body is built up when we prepare people for service. The body is unified. The body becomes more intimate with Jesus in their knowledge of who he is. The body becomes more like Jesus, attaining to the full measure of Christ. The body is also then protected from false teachers who want to come in and snatch people away from God's hand. And the body would be known for the love that we would demonstrate for one another. And so when you discover your shape for service. It's not so that you get blessed by, by serving, but you bless other people. Your gift was not given to you so that you could just edify yourself. Your gift was given to you so that you could belong to this great body of Christ. I, I, I love how this can be illustrated. True story. Two guys who attended Kent College of Law in Chicago many years ago. There was Tom, who was the valedictorian of his class, and Tom's friend Stan, uh, to whom Tom gave much of, his, of the credit for his academic achievements. How Stan and Tom became friends is like what uh, Paul Harvey would have said is the rest of the story. Because they had met when Stan had offered to help Tom down a flight of stairs. Now you think, well, that's odd. Why would one guy be helping another guy down the stairs? Well, that's significant because Tom had been blind since age of 20. Kind of later on in life, he'd gone blind and now needed help going down the stairs. And their, their, their friendship just blossomed as Tom would rely on Stan to be his eyes. What did Stan uh, receive in return? 
Well, since Stan had lost both of his arms in two separate accidents, Tom, the blind man, was able to carry the books that Stan, the armless man, could not. And, 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 and so the blind man carried the books which the armless man would read out loud to him, and thus they became interdependent, both in school and in friendship, and then eventually they became law partners. So be, before we get to the next part about the leadership of our servants, you must understand that God has called you in to service. Every member is a minister. Now, how can you get involved? Well, many of you have already gotten involved, but some of you are going, I, I don't know what to do. Let, let, let me just explain a few things going on right now that it would be lovely for people to, to step up and say, you know what, I will take care of that. For example, and, and these things are not beneath us at all. Please understand. We're not saying, well, that there's more important stuff and there's less important stuff. But do you know that either uh, me, and you've seen me walk, and you know how bad balance I've got, or Pastor Andy or Pastor Ethan go and do the reader board every week. And, and you can tell when we don't, and it continues to say, hey, uh, happy Valentine's Day, and you're in June. And you're going, come on, Trey, it's time to change the sign. Well, that's not really high on, on, on the priority list when you've got other things to, to, to get going. Boy, it'd be nice if somebody said, you know what, I'm going I'm to come in once a week and I'm going I'm to help uh, get that sign changed. Boy, that'd be nice. It would be nice to have uh, more people involved with a few that are already involved of putting chairs back. I was blessed today because yesterday, um, before our, our uh, service for Pat Evans, I had come in and, and brought at least the stacks over to, to put into the rows, and I, I figured this morning I'd come early and I'd, I'd put them out. Praise Jesus, some beautiful person who wanted just to be a servant, came in, saw them, and already set up the chairs. That would be amazing if we had more people doing those kinds of things. You say, but that's not a big deal. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. When people begin to do the works of ministry, it allows everybody to do their part even better. And so every member must have a ministry in some way because then you're using the gifts as God has designed for you to use your gifts and we come together in unity and the, the body is built up. But now we find in Scripture that there are roles that particular ministers will play in the body. Uh, the, the first time that we see this specialization of ministry is back in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, we looked at this last year where there was a problem in the distribution of food in the early church. They were trying to, best, uh, trying to figure out how best to play out the love that Jesus wanted them to have for each other. So we go to Acts chapter 6 and we read that in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, the apostles, gathered all of the disciples together. See, that's the entire church, all the disciples. And they said, listen, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, that does make it sound like they were thinking that waiting on tables is way below them. But they had a role. Their role, as we saw about elders, that they were the protectors of the DNA. They were to teach the word. They were to, they were to lead the flock. Here was a need that was very important. 
Because if these Greek-speaking widows were not being uh, ministered to, then there would have been a division in the church. And, and, and people would say, yeah, you talk about the love of Jesus, but you don't show it to me. And, and the cause of Christ would have been marred. So this was an amazingly important thing to do, but not to the detriment of the leadership of the church. And so they said, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and ministry of the Word. And if you, you jump down to verse 7, it says, So the Word of God spread, and the number of disciples increased in Jerusalem rapidly. And a large number of even priests came, became obedient to the faith. Here we see this appointment of leaders of ministries, universally acknowledged as the very first deacons of the church. And again, just like we saw with the elders' qualifications, these guys were among the people. You didn't have to hire them out to bring them in. They were among the people. They, they were known. They were also people who were filled with the Spirit. They were godly men who endeavored to live their life in integrity and the holiness that God had called them to. But they were also full of wisdom. They understood all of the intricacies of putting together an organization. God gave them wisdom to figure this out. And then they were giving a very specific task to, to complete in order for the church to function efficiently. It would prevent distractions. It would be a practical ministry. And it would be promoting unity among the believers. Now, that didn't mean that they were above the membership of the church. It meant that they were called alongside to help the church do ministry, to do what God had gifted the church to do. So how do you find people like this? People who are willing to step up to um, alleviate some of the work that tends to be just kind of dumped on those who get paid to do it. People who see a need and who are willing to take the lead to meet that need. By the way, I love it when somebody comes in my office and says... Trey, we need this ministry. And, and they begin to talk like they have this really strong burden for this ministry that needs to get done. And I go, great. When are you going to do that? And they go, no, you are going to do it. I go, no, God gave you that vision. God gave you that burden. He, he wanted you to see the podcast on the website. He, he wanted you, he, he gave you the insight to say that the app uh, needs to be better updated. He, he, he looks at you to say, hey, um, the, the, uh, the, the bushes outside need to be trimmed on, on a more regular basis. He gave you that vision. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that exciting that God would come down and tell you that you have a job to do? And so instead of dumping it upon the, the church leadership, man, maybe God's calling you into leadership as well. So this morning, real quick, I want to look at the character and the role and the impact of the church leaders that are known as deacons or deaconesses who are typically the ones who will take the lead in those kinds of ministry. Um, and not surprisingly, we, we find out all of these characteristics from the same book that we found out the characteristics of elders, and that's in 1 Timothy. So if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read about these deacons in, in the specialized role that they have. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8, 
It says, deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience, and they must first be tested, and then, if there's nothing against them, then let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives, and I want to come back to this because that's a very interesting verse, okay? And, and, and I really want to show you um, what that probably means. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. And those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. So let's talk first of all about the character of these ministry leaders, these deacons. First of all, there's this overarching understanding of they need to be worthy of respect. That they need to be worthy of respect. And that gets played out in a couple different ways. First of all, in the way that they discipline themselves. You know, it says that they don't chase after much wine. That they don't pursue dishonest gain. Uh, and so there's this moderation, again, in, in, in these men that discipline themselves. And, and number two, it's in the way that they devote themselves to the things of God, keeping hold to His truth, living in His integrity, His holiness, just like the elders, especially when it comes to their family relationships, their, their closest uh, relationships that God has given to them. Now, this is both true, this worthy of respect is both true for men as well as women, okay? Going back to that, that word in verse 11 where it says, uh, and their wives. Well, here, here's the bump. If you look at the Greek, which this was written in, you'll understand that the word for wife and the word for woman is the exact same word. So scholars, people who are trying to figure out what, how to interpret the Bible, they've got to go back and say, well, which use is this? Is it really talking about their wives? Well, it's very interesting that if it was talking about their wives, we didn't talk about the wives of the elders having any sort of characteristics or qualifications. So why would Paul all of a sudden start talking about deacons' wives when it very well could be that he is talking about women who are serving in the same capacity as, ministry, as the men are as ministry leaders? See, somebody asked me, well, why, why can't we have women elders? I mean, are you a sexist church? No. no. We read that elders need to be men. But here's the, here's the cool part, is those who are ministry leaders can be men or women. In fact, you look throughout the entire uh, history of the early church, you'll see uh, author after author after author, church father, all of these people writing about the state of the church, and they all talk about what we call deaconesses. Uh, women who will be ministers, who take on that role of saying, I see a need. I'm going to step into that need, and I'm going to help see that it is filled, just like the men would. And so, uh, as you look at most modern translations, it just gets wives. But if you look at the New American Standard, and if you look at the Berean Study Bible, both of those acknowledge that probably this is talking about, in the same way, women who are servants, need to be people who are worthy of respect. So, and they, they show that through their discipline, 
where they are not malicious talkers and they're temperate. And they show in their way that they have devoted themselves, that they would be... Um, uh, that they would uh, uh, dedicate themselves to be trustworthy in everything. So folks, we have women and men who serve as ministry leaders here in this congregation, and that is to be applauded because God is not a respecter of gender. He, he, yes, he gives roles to different ones, especially in the family and in church leadership as it comes to eldership. But when it comes to being ministers, guess what? We're all ministers. Men, women, boys, girls, and if you are gifted to be a leader in ministry, that would qualify you to be a deacon or a deaconess. So whether it's male or female, it's very obvious that leaders are called to model the character of Christ. That's what their character is supposed to be. Their character is supposed to be of integrity, of someone who is moderate, one who models themselves after Christ. What is their role? What's, what's the role of a deacon and a deaconess? Well, they're given this amazing role, this amazing responsibility, because they're the ones on the front line doing exactly what God has called them to do. Uh, in, in John chapter 13, Jesus said, well, we read that when he, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and You're right, because I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, folks, he is telling that to all of his disciples, for all of us to be serving one another. But deacons and deaconesses then take the lead in in service. They lead our church in service. We should see them being the first to step up in the middle of a need that can be met. Uh, they, they might step into the most difficult service. They, they might step up into the most menial, thankless service, the, the most humbling service. They step up. And I'm so happy. I'm so, I, I love the fact that we have so many men and women in our congregation who do exactly that. They come here on a Sunday morning early. Or you see them throughout the month organizing structures to make our ministries operate more efficiently. They take care of hospitality issues. They show up to funerals with desserts and casseroles. They make meals for shut-ins. They come and take care of our campus, whether it's inside and there's things that need to be fixed or outside to make our campus look really nice. See, they see practical needs and they step into the role of making sure that that need is taken care of, but not just for them to do it, but for them to bring other people alongside, to serve as a model for other people. See, we don't just relegate the dirty jobs to the deacons and the deaconesses because we don't want to do them. No, no, they step into those roles so that they can then mentor us to come alongside of them and learn how to be a servant as well. And folks, that's the first part of their impact. When we look at the impact of deacons and deaconesses, first of all, it is to inspire the rest of the church to get outside of themselves and to serve. But second of all, I love what Jesus said in John chapter 13. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And that kind of love is a self 
giving love, a self-sacrificing love. See, that was supposed to be the trademark of our faith, a, a trademark that sets us apart from all other faiths. Jesus says, you know how all men will know that you're my disciples? If you have a fish bumper sticker on your car. No? If you don't miss a Sunday morning at all. No? If you've memorized all the books of the Bible. No. No. The trademark is have you learned how to get outside of yourself to serve other people and love them the way that Christ loved us. That's the practical love, the practical mark on our lives that will make the world sit up and take notice and say, I want to be a part of that. You see, when Christianity began, you could only explain the the rapid expansion through, first of all, the Holy Spirit and the power that he would give to his followers, but also the fact that these people would stand up in integrity and do things that nobody else would. And when there was an epidemic that would hit a city and everybody else would flee the city because they didn't want to get sick, it was the Christians who would stay there and care for the sick to the detriment of their own health and sometimes their own lives. Tertullian, who was a fourth century, uh, uh, third century writer and apologist, he tells us that the pagans of his day would watch that and say, wow, see how these Christians love each other and how willing they are, they're, they're ready to die for one another. And that made a difference. See, I, I want to go back to that passage in Acts that talks about the very first deacons, Acts chapter 6, where, where there was a need and, and the apostles said, hey, let's bring in these guys to serve. You would think that that was just an internal thing. But look at verse 7. Yes, it was internal, but the word of God spread because of it, because people were willing to get outside of themselves and love each other. The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. You, you want to know how a church grows? You can go to seminar after seminar after seminar on church growth. You can talk about marketing. You can talk about getting the right guy up in the pulpit. You can talk about having the best kind of Bible studies. But I'll tell you this. A church will grow when people see a genuine love and service of its people towards each other. And they want to be a part of that because they see that Jesus actually changes lives. The church grew because the deacons did their job. And did you see here that even some priests became obedient to the faith? To me, that's significant because it it was almost as if the priests were stuck in a dead religion that didn't change anybody. But as soon as they saw this movement go and how they loved one another, they wanted to be a part of that because that's why they had gotten into this ministry in the first place. They wanted to see people's lives change. As the church begins to show love for one another and we have men and women stepping forward in those roles that will be the leaders of ministries, then the church will grow and our impact will be to live out the great commandment to love God and to love people and to fulfill the great commission to bring other people into a saving knowledge of Jesus and make disciples of all nations. Right now, I'd invite the worship team to come on up as we end. I just want to give you an inspirational story about a guy named John Eglin who was just a deacon in a church. Just a deacon. Well, just a deacon showed up one day to church. Uh, It had been a massive snowfall, so a lot of people didn't show up. 
A few did. The deacon did. The pastor was even stuck at his house and couldn't show up. So they were debating, should we even do church? And Eglin said, you know what? We, I, I should bring something. He'd never preached before in his life. He was just a deacon, a ministry leader. But he saw a need, and he was going to be faithful to God, who was faithful to him. And he began to preach. And it wasn't a, a real inspirational sermon at all, but it was true to God's word. And at the end of this hesitant sermon, there was a young man who came forward to give his life to Jesus. A pretty cool thing. But nobody understood the significance of that because that young man who came down because John Eglin had preached a sermon, just a deacon, was none other than the, the prince of preachers, a guy named Charles Spurgeon. And I don't know if you understand uh, Christian history, but Spurgeon uh, became so popular of, of a pastor that thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to know the Lord through his ministry. He came forward because a deacon decided to be true to the, the service that God had showed him needed to happen. Folks, what would happen if every single one of us saw a need and we began to serve in that way? And then we began to look at our deacons and deaconesses as those who would lead us into ministry and we can actually see the church as the way God wants to see the church. Wouldn't that be amazing?